Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where each week we tell you about something strange or unusual that's happened in history. I am your host, Barnaby King. I almost said I'm your host, Amelia Edwards, but no, I'm not. That's my co-host. Hello. Hello, I'm Barnaby King. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) So this week, it is the last of our National Women's History Month specials, as it were, Mm -hmm. which, to be honest, are not that much more different from our regular episodes. (laughs) So you may not have noticed that's what's going on, but that has been what's going on. We've been doing a lot of women recently. Yes, indeed. So to round it off, I have another woman for you. Yay, a woman in history. Yes. My God. This is that time when Mary Anning discovered poop. Yay. Yay. So Mary Anning is, you've told me, kind of like a childhood hero of yours, would you say? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, when I was little, I really loved dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And you know how I haven't really grown out of that love of dinosaurs? No, we watched Jurassic Park very frequently. (laughs) That's not true. No, okay, we watch it occasionally. We do. Um, (laughs) Anyway, I, as a child, I absolutely loved fossils and dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And my dad used to take me for walks on the beach. Mm -hmm. And we would, you know, go looking for fossilized things. You'd imagine that you were Mary Anning, fossil hunter. I would imagine I was Mary Anning. She was one (laughs) of my sort of um, great science history Mm. uh, women back in those days. She was the only paleontologist, if we can call her a paleontologist, I'm not sure. Yeah, we can. um, That I knew about. Mm -hmm. And whenever I went to the... National history, Natural History Museum, sorry. Yeah. Um, I would look out for all those fossils on the walls where yeah. Mary Anning discovered them. And it was just sort of a little nice moment of being like, here is a woman who did a lot of stuff and we're not giving her a pat on the head and being like, let's relegate her into history. Yeah. Yeah. She's a woman who has seen something of an upsurge in popularity in recent years. Mm. Um, and rightly so. Uh, she was very influential as you will find out um the advantage of course of you actually knowing this topic is you can correct me if i get anything wrong well i don't know loads (laughs) about her is the thing i know the child's history of mary anning right well we should say for our listeners then mary anning was a woman who is famous for her incredible knowledge about fossils Mm -hmm. and basically prehistoric life yeah and this is because partly of where she lived so mary anning was born in 1799 in lyme regis in dorset i love lyme regis it's great we uh went through it on our way to st hostel on holiday once Mm, i've Uh, stayed there a couple of times as well or been in day trips there yeah it's a it's a really nice sort of quaint quaint place Mm -hmm. uh on the southern coast of England mm-hmm. and it is part of the Jurassic Coast. Yes, it is. Which is named for basically the sheer number of fossils that are around that area. Yeah. Uh, not just from the Jurassic period, but you know, yeah, that's um, part of it. It's called the Jurassic Coast because <laughs> you find a lot of dinosaur stuff there and exactly. Jurassic sounds better than Triassic or Cretaceous. Yeah, so exactly. you might as well. Very odd rock there. Yes, I'm going to be talking about that. Are you? Yes, I am. The Blue Lias. Yes, really weird. It's so weird, but we'll get onto that in a little bit. Mm. So Lyme Regis at this time uh, was actually something of quite a chic holiday destination. It was. And this is because the Napoleonic Wars had made foreign travel really difficult. So everyone was encouraged to, you know, holiday at home, Mm. much as we are being encouraged (laughs) now, what with the coronavirus. (laughs) The worst thing is when my bits of history I know come from fictional books oh yeah because i knew about this 
explicitly I knew about yeah. this because of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell oh, yes. where they go oh wait the Napoleonic Wars are over we can go to France <laughs> instead of Lyme Regis yes also Jane Austen mentions Lyme Regis in she one of does, her books yes Persuasion. Uh, Persuasion yes a young lady goes there and falls off some stairs yep it seems that falling is quite frequent in Lyme Regis partly because of the weird rock and partly mm-hmm. because the place is on like a 45 degree hill well okay <laughs> I went to see the thing that I think the hero, like the young lady in Jane Austen falls off. Yeah. I've forgotten what it's called. Mm. Um, but it would be very hard to climb up. We went on a day when the sea was rushing over the steps as well. Yeah. And they're basically just slabs of rock like hammered into the side of this vertical yeah. wall. It's it's a kind of terrifying place to walk. Oh yeah, I mean the sea is known to be particularly rough around there. There are mm. some storms that really sort of attack the town as it were. And of course I know there are probably listeners in other countries who are sort of going, what? Storms in England? Like, they're nothing compared to ours. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but we're not used to it. We're not used to it. <laughs> and also we know that the storms there are caused by Leopluridons. So. <laughs> okay, so... Um, As I said, Lyme Regis had become a tourist destination. Mm. And where you get tourists, you get people selling souvenirs and tat to them, basically. (laughs) Yeah. So Lyme Regis was one of the many places that benefited from the fossil trade, as it were, Mm -hmm. by basically selling them off as souvenirs to people who had come to visit. Yeah. Uh, Which when you think about it probably means that there may have been a lot of scientific discoveries that were just taken home and like put on a shelf as being like oh darling do you remember our trip to Lyme Regis I mean okay so first up possibly yeah secondly if you go to Lyme Regis today you Mm. can still buy loads of cheap fossils (laughs) I am not kidding there's ammonites all over the shop oh yeah yeah there's still plenty to be found. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, for reasons oh, no, reasons that I'm about to talk about now. Hooray! So Lyme Regis is particularly good for fossils because mm. of the what we talked about before, the cliffs of Blue Lias. Mm. Now, Blue Lias are basically alternating strata of limestone and shale. Okay. And they're in about sort of 10 centimetre ridges. Yeah. And it is really quite unstable. Yes. So when you get the very wet seasons and the storms on the coast, it tends to peel layers Mm. of it away. And what that does for aspiring fossil hunters is it exposes more new fossils underneath. Oh, okay. So you've kind of got a regenerating supply. It's not kind of a case of, oh, I've picked over this beach, it's Mm. done now. Nope, because there's going to be a storm and more are on their way. (laughs) Excellent. So this was quite big business. So Mary Anning, as I said, she was born in 1799 to Mary Moore, mm-hmm. later Anning, uh, who's known as Molly, and Richard Anning, who is a cabinet maker and one of these sellers of tat to tourists. Nice. And they were originally living in Blandford, which <laughs> I, I assure our non-UK listeners is a very real place. No, but it it's ha- not. It is. It is. It has an amazing name, Blandford. It's so bland. <laughs> it's no Lyme Regis, is it? Well, no. So they moved from Blandford to Lyme Regis, presumably because it was easier for Richard to find fossils and sell to tourists. Mm. And, you know, cabinet makers, that's, that's good solid work, that is, right there. Yeah. Everyone needs a cabinet. I suppose so. And I guess if you've got all your fancy Regency ladies coming down for Mm. the summer, you can sell them some cabinets. Exactly. Yeah. So they bought a house in 
one of the poorer areas of Lyme Regis at the time. And Lyme Regis had a real sort of wealth disparity problem. Mm. You had the richer houses, which were further up, and they were sort of very nice and secure. And then the poorer houses were much closer to the sea. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. So the Annings had a house by the sea that was said to be so close that sometimes the fossils would wash into the house. I mean, that saves you a job, doesn't it? It does save you a bit of a job, but then it's a problem when the sea level rises because there are occasions where they had to evacuate the house via the upstairs window. Oh, no. Because otherwise they would be drowning. (laughs) (laughs) So the family, they were prolific. Okay. Um, oh, I love Regency prolific people. Go yeah. on. How many children? So Mary Anning was one of ten children to be mm. born to Richard and Molly. I think I think they needed to put more effort in. Well, ten, only ten. Well, My they God. might have got discouraged because the fact that of these ten, only Mary and her three-year-old brother Joseph lived beyond infancy. Oh God! So Mary was actually named for an older sister mm. uh, five months prior to the Mary Anning we're talking about yeah. being born, her older sister was left briefly unaccompanied in a room with a fire. Oh, no. And there were a number of wood shavings around, which <laughs> no. caught and set fire to her clothes, and she died. Oh, God. I okay. Know. I know I shouldn't have laughed at that. No, I know. Like, okay, especially for a family whose main issue is the amount of water in their yeah. house. How <laughs> the does irony. Burn to death? <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god. So five months later, our Mary Anning mm-hmm. was born and she was named Mary after her sister and mother. Yeah. This seems to have been kind of a regular thing to yeah. do. I had a an ancestor who had like three older brothers all called William because they'd got rid of one <laughs> William and then they needed a yeah. new William. It's it gets really sad when you realise that someone is like the fifth William or something. Yeah. So a number of the other siblings died of various illnesses, uh, mm. a lot of smallpox. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, it seems like they were a bit of a sickly family. Okay. Uh, Mary herself was known to be a sickly infant, as you might expect, but mm-hmm. there was an event that has reached folkloric status that may have changed that. Go on. And this is, this is mad. In 1800... Uh, she, the baby Mary, was Mm -hmm. being held by a neighbour who was with two other women and they were watching a travelling circus that had come around. Okay. But very suddenly, a severe storm whipped up, seemingly out of nowhere. Right. And it was a lightning storm. So the women fled to the safety of a tree. Oh, no. Guys, stop (laughs) leaving your children in a room with fire and wood shavings or going under a tree when there's lightning. So these three women and the baby, they were huddling under the tree and it got hit by lightning. Really? Yeah. The three women all died. Oh, my God. Mary survived. And after this, it was reported that suddenly she was a lot healthier Mm. and she was a lot more focused and... She grew up to be very clever. The lightning (laughs) supercharged her brain is what I'm saying. Okay, are they sure that that was Mary and it wasn't some (laughs) other baby had crawled underneath the tree (laughs) after the three women and infant had died? 
I mean, I guess this is a period of time where it is possible to lose track of babies like that. But I'm, I, I think we're pretty sure that this is Marianne. Okay. It just sounds like... You remember we were talking about um, the celestial sex bird? Yeah. And the whole deal with electricity. At yeah. this point in time when they were like, oh my gosh, yeah. what can we do with electricity? And they went, oh, one thing you can do, electrocute your babies mm. and they will become... Superhuman. Yes, they will become healthy and smart. Amazing. I, I kind of think that part of I, I don't I, I from what I can see, this is a thing that happened, but I think this story is about it like making her better and making her smarter. I think this is because like we can see that Mary Anning is born to a working class family. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that Mary Anning was incredibly intelligent. So mm. I kind of think this might be a bit of a sort of classist folklore thing happening. It's like, yeah. why is this working class woman so intelligent? It's because she was struck by lightning as a baby. <laughs> yeah, there are no intelligent working class women at the time. Yeah, I kind of think that's why this is gone into folklore in that way i mean sure it's like the way everyone says oh shakespeare couldn't possibly have written his plays because his dad was a glove maker exactly um no sorry that's bullshit yeah so as i've said the family they were quite poor Mm -hmm. and the only education that mary received was from her church okay her family belonged to the dissenters who were an offshoot of the Church of England. And one of their beliefs was that the poor should be receiving education. So she received some theological education, but she taught herself how to read and write. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you get an electric baby. Yep. They learn how to read and write. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, if if you're worried that, you know, your child isn't going to be great in school, Mm -hmm. just go out in a lightning storm underneath a tree. I mean, you will die. (laughs) Yes, you will die, but your baby will live and grow powerful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Please don't follow this advice. No, absolutely do not. To help out with the family business, uh, Mary would accompany her father on his fossil hunting tours. Mm -hmm. And he would show her how to find the fossils and how to clean them. And Mary, who was quite into this, would make some sketches of them as well. Nice. And this continued on for quite a while, she and her brother joining their father on various fossil hunting expeditions. Mm. When Mary was 11 years old, her father died. Oh no. He had suffered injuries from a fall from the cliffs. Oh, as God. we mentioned, yeah, yeah, Blue Lias is pretty unstable. Mm. And either before or possibly as a result of his weakened state, he contracted tuberculosis. Oh, God. And he died, mm. leaving the family with no savings and a lot of debt. I mean, maybe it's just as well that they didn't have all ten children yeah. living in the house. Although it does seem that at this point Molly is pregnant again. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so they definitely, the surviving family members had to band together and really sort of like try and keep the family afloat financially. Mm. So Joseph, the older brother, uh, was became an apprentice upholsterer. Okay, nice. Yeah, I know, right? That sounds so fancy. It does. And also, it seems like he was super into this. Good. Like, he he stops going along with so many of, like, Mary's fossil hunting expeditions because mm. he's got to go do some upholstery. She sure. is into it. Nice. So Mary, as you might have guessed from what I just said, either on her own back or at her mother's prodding, it's hard to tell, continued to basically find and sell fossils to tourists. Nice. In 1811, so just a year later, Mary had her first big discovery. 
She and her brother were searching for fossils amongst the sand, uh, presumably while Joseph had a bit of time off from his upholstery apprenticeship. Mm. And he found an oddly shaped skull. Okay. But he had to go off and feed his upholstery addiction. So he was like, Mary, do you want to look into this and see what's going on here? (laughs) Okay. So he buggers off. Yep. And Mary finds this weird long skull. Mm. And she's kind of like, the rest of this creature must be around here. Okay. But she can't find it. She keeps going back to this point on the beach for the next four months, trying to find the rest of this skeleton and just can't. Mm. But a storm happens. Yay! A layer of the blue lias comes away and reveals the rest of the skeleton. She puts together one of the first completely intact skeletons of a creature that some people thought was a crocodile Mm -hmm. and other people thought was some sort of monster. What it was, was the complete skeleton of an ichthyosaur. Yes! Which translates basically as fish lizard, Mm. which is great because it is neither a fish nor a lizard. But they're beautiful. (laughs) They are beautiful, absolutely. So she made a sketch of this completely new find Mm. and sold the fossil to the Lord of the Manor of Colway nearby. Okay. He bought it for £23, which is about £1,900 in today's money, Mm -hmm. which to me seems a bit cheap for one of the first complete ichthyosaur skeletons, but... I guess at the time, you know... I suppose if you're like, okay, here is this child trying to sell me a fossil. Um, She's from a very poor background. Um, So I'm going to get away with giving her Mm. just under the equivalent of £2,000. It may also be some people thought that the skeleton was a fake put together by Mary and her family. Mm. And this was because the theory of extinction was still very new. Oh, right. So... Some people said, no, it is real because it's a crocodile. But other people said it doesn't like look quite right. Mm. And we know that there's no creature that looks like this. Yeah. Because, as I said, people weren't, were only just getting to grips with the idea that, you know, creatures could go extinct. Okay. That's super interesting. Especially when you consider that they a lot of people probably didn't really know what a crocodile looked like. No. No, I mean, I, I think we've mentioned before on this podcast, medieval bestiaries. Medieval bestiaries are hilarious. And granted, though, they did have a lot of circuses and um, mm. like animal exhibits in yeah. Regency times. There's a fantastic one about the rhinoceros. Like, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. And they're like, look at it. It's so great. You can fire bullets at it and nothing <laughs> oh happens. Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but I don't know whether they would have had crocodiles in those. Mm, Possibly. Possibly. But either way, there were there was enough argument of people going, this isn't a crocodile, mm-hmm. that it, it allowed people to think, you know, maybe this is a fake. Um, it's also like Charles Darwin had only been born two years prior. So okay. we're well off. The theory of evolution. Right. So, yeah. So the idea of something going extinct would have been absolutely mad because if you could have all these extinct animals that are turning into fossils, Mm. then surely that would mean that there were a lot fewer animals about than there used to be. Yeah. That would be weird. Yeah. So it's a bit of an interesting time as far as Mm. paleontology goes. (laughs) 
The ichthyosaur skeleton was later auctioned off for just about twice the price that Mary had sold it for, and it was then named the ichthyosaur. Okay. Uh, prior to that, it had a number of different names, but now it had its official designation, which it has kept to this day. Very nice. Fish I'm, lizard. I'm assuming that Mary couldn't speak Latin. Oh, no. No. Oh, no, no, no. So no ichthyosaurs from her? No, no. I don't think she... Uh, if she did name any of the fossils, it's mm. not really recorded. Um, there are two fossils that are named after her, but nice. they were named after her death. Yeah. Uh, what you'll see is that Mary really gets screwed over by the scientific community. <laughs> well, colour me surprised. I know, woman right? Yeah. Being f***ed over by the <laughs> scientific community. Of the 19th century. My God. Yeah. So the find gave the family some fame, but it didn't completely solve their financial problems. Mm. But fortunately, they had a benefactor. And this is one of a number of benefactors throughout Mary Anning's life. It seemed that there were individuals who, despite the sort of prevailing orthodoxy of the time, were like, no, this woman and her family should be given, you know, recognition mm. and compensation for what they're doing. So enter Lieutenant Colonel Thomas James Birch. Nice name, very English. Nice name, very English, and he is an absolute babe. <laughs> he was a regular customer of Mary's, and he had amassed quite a large collection of fossils over the years. Hmm. And he seems to have been like on pretty good terms, possibly even friends with the family as well. And he was shocked to discover in the early 1820s that they had now become so poor that they were forced to sell their furniture in order to keep themselves afloat. Oh, God. Yeah. But now how are they going to keep anything in the house when the sea comes? I know, right? So he decides to go Bob Geldof on them and basically set up an event to raise money for them. Excellent. And what he does is he decides to auction off his fossil collection, which... It, it it actually seems like quite a big deal. He writes some letters about this, and it's like, it's a real sacrifice on his part. Yeah. He really doesn't want to get rid of this. He loves his fossil collection, but he writes that he knows the money will be well applied, and so he's happy to do it. That's so sweet. Like, that's really nice. Yeah. So the auction raised £400, which is, in today's money, more than £32,000. Okay. And that was all given to Mary Anning and her family. Mm. And, of course, this helped them immeasurably. I will say now, Mary Anning is struck by financial difficulty through many points in her life. Mm. I think th there are a number of factors going on here. Um, fossil hunting is not the most steady employment. Mm. You've got to wait for a big storm. Exactly. And it's also quite dangerous. So you can't always risk everything yeah. to get that fossil that may or may not be there. Um, there were also a, a few situations where there were some bad investments and leading them onto troubled times. Mm. And as I say, there were many gentlemen scientists who were passing off Mary Anning's work as their own. So she wasn't receiving financial compensation for it. Great. For all that some individuals, like Lieutenant Colonel Thomas James Birch, uh, did want to help out Mary and like, properly go you know this woman is making all these findings and mm -hmm. she's really great the general establishment basically didn't want to know yeah most famously uh she was unable to join the geological society of london which had been set up in 1807 and was 
sort of the foremost of accepted paleontology. Mm. And she wasn't accepted because she was a woman. Hooray! Yep. The society actually didn't allow women to join until 1904. So it's nearly 100 years after it was formed. Wonderful. I think it's an interesting one because... I suspect that there's probably always going to be those little arguments that people have. And I suspect Mm. that one thing they will have said is, oh, she's not a proper scientist. Mm. She just finds the fossils. Oh, no, no, no. Did they not even do that? Oh, no, no. I mean, she is a proper scientist. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. Um, All I mean is often that's the argument that you get when it's a woman or a minority or whatever. Okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah, but uh, people who spoke to her were amazed by her knowledge. Like mm. She wasn't just finding them. She was recording them, making notes. She would read as much as she could from, like, papers on paleontology. Nice. Uh, she, in her one of her only bits of writing that we have, she wrote into a magazine, or a journal, I should say, that published uh, a paper correcting them about this particular shark okay. that they had published as, this is a new genus of shark. And she's like, no, no. it's not. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So her, she didn't really write herself because, you know, she wasn't accepted. Mm. She, she, she wasn't the right sort for the gentleman scientists of the time. She did write a number of other letters, though. Okay. Including writing frequently to the British Museum, mm. asking them to pay her <laughs> because they were displaying a load of fossils that she had found. Oh, really? Yeah. Amazing. I mean, the British museum as much as i love it Mm -hmm. it basically is just hey this is a collection of stuff we stole (laughs) it really is yeah Ah. so mary anning remained one of the foremost sources on fossils and in 1823 she discovered the first nearly complete skeleton of a plesiosaur and in 1828 she discovered the pterosaur which was then ganked by the British Museum and displayed as a flying dragon. (laughs) Oh, British Museum, never changed. I know. It's great because uh, Mary Anning is probably not the first person to find a pterosaur, but she is the first person to find one and identify it as a pterosaur. Okay. Um, Which is great that then the British Museum takes it and goes, flying dragon. Yep. (laughs) Unlike the other sorts of dragons. I know, right? I mean, I guess you've got Komodo dragons. Yeah, I guess they must have known about Komodo dragons at this point. But at the same time, I love the idea that you're like, oh, oh, we found a flying one. And they're like, this is a bird sort of thing. (laughs) Like, Well, yeah, this is what had previously been thought when mm. pterosaur skeletons had been found. It's like, oh, this is clearly some sort of bird. Yeah. And then Mary Anning comes along, looks at it, and is like, nah, great big flying lizard. And yeah. So the British Museum hears that and goes, right, dragons, got it. Yes, except <laughs> except that his head is too big to be a dragon. <laughs> like, yeah, It's a long-headed dragon. <laughs> <laughs> long-headed flying dragon, yes, sure. Yeah. In 1829, she made another discovery, which is less glamorous but just as, if not more, scientifically important. Okay. She was the first to discover that coprolites, Mm -hmm. previously believed to be bezoars, were actually fossilised poop. Nice. Wait, is that what bezoars were? Well, they were one of the things that people thought were bezoars. Didn't people used to try and cure, like, stomach problems with them or something? Yep. Oh my god, that's hilarious. (laughs) So, a bezoar is basically a stone Mm -hmm. found in the 
digestive system of various animals. I think typically yeah. goats. Yeah, the goat. Yeah. And uh, historically, it's sort of believed that they had these sort of semi-magical powers, particularly mm. with curing poisons. Gets referred to in Harry Potter. Yes, it does indeed. Yeah. Um, so in some cases, what people were doing to try and cure poison was basically eating fossilised poop. That's incredible. Yeah. So it's it's pretty good that, you know, Mary Anning realised that it was poop mm-hmm. because not only does it preserve fossils, but mm-hmm. it also stops people eating shit to cure poison. Well, I guess if it's fossilised poop, you'll find it. I know. But, but I know, it's, it's, it's still funny. It's still funny. Uh, the letter in which Mary Anning records her discovery of coprolites mm-hmm. uh, was actually sold at auction last year so in 2020 mm-hmm. uh, to an anonymous private collector for £100,800 yeah so like we said at the beginning she is getting some traction these days oh sure just not in her time really so during the 1820s her fortunes had improved somewhat as you can tell like she's mm. making a lot of amazing discoveries and in 1826 she uh, had amassed enough money that she could set up her own shop Ooh. a fancy one with glass windows oh my god which was something of a luxury especially to a poor family mm. uh, prior to this she'd been selling fossils from her house or from a table set up in a local inn. Nice. So it's pretty great that now she has her own space, her emporium, where that she is can lovely. She can display all her fossils and she can sell them. And it's like ah, oh, living the dream. That said, I really one day want to be able to say that I bought a fossil from a woman down the pub. I know, right? It's great. <laughs> You couldn't imagine it usually. No. I have bought weird things in pubs before though. You have? I bought a jar of honey at a pub once. Oh, I remember that. Mm. We got high for a week. What? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. kidding. (laughs) It was just honey. It was quite nice. It was good honey. I remember it. (laughs) So this shop had a full ichthyosaur skeleton behind the counter on display. And in 1827... Mary had a royal visit. (gasps) King Frederick Augustus II of Saxony, who was a naturalist himself and had an extensive collection of natural history specimens, turned up because he had heard about her shop. Amazing. And he bought an ichthyosaur skeleton. And his court physician, who was accompanying him, Carl Gustav Karras, uh, writes about the occasion. We had alighted from the carriage. Should I do an accent? No. Okay. Actually, yeah, let's do it. We had alighted from the carriage and were proceeding on foot when we fell in with a shop in which the most remarkable petrifications and fossil remains, the head of an ichthyosaurus, beautiful ammonites, etc., were exhibited in the window. We entered and found the small shop and adjoining chamber completely filled with fossil productions of the coast. I found in the <laughs> shop a large slab of blackish clay in which a perfect ichthyosaurus of at least six feet was embedded. The specimen would have been a great acquisition for many of the cabinets of natural history on the continent, and I'd consider the price demanded, £15 sterling, as very moderate. Mm. So, yeah, she is selling these stuff off Comparatively cheap. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she sold her first one for £23. Mm. Um, Karis then basically asked Mary for her contact details. He's <laughs> like, hey girl, can I have your number? <laughs> yeah, basically. And she gave it to him. She gave her name. 
and her address and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And she said to him, I am well known throughout the whole of Europe. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Mary Anning was pretty self-assured. Mm. She knew that she was smart and she knew that what she was doing was valuable work. Bender, honey, we love you. Shut up, baby. I know it. And this kind of led her to being a little bit bitter. I mean, fair enough. Which, yeah, is fair enough because of the continuing failure of gentlemen scientists to give her any credit for her work, Mm. which they then pass off as their own. Uh, She used to have a number of women accompany her on her fossil hunting expeditions. And uh, one of them wrote... She says the world has used her ill. These men of learning have sucked her brains and made a great deal of publishing works of which she furnished the contents while she derived none of the advantages. Wow. Yeah. She's pissed off. Yeah. And very rightly (laughs) so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You're not going to hear me say that she is not right in being annoyed at the establishment. Mm. So around the 1830s, Mary and her family were in financial troubles once again. Mm. Fossil hunting, as I said, was a dangerous uh, profession and it was difficult enough to get good findings as it was. And there were some fruitless seasons that were making things a bit tricky. There's also this really sad story in 1833 of a cliff collapsing and nearly killing her. But instead... She survives, but mm-hmm. it does kill her dog. Oh, no. Who's been a sort of stalwart companion for many years. Yeah. And it's really sad. In later portraits of her, she's generally depicted with her dog by her side. Oh. I know. It's really sad. Fossil hunting is dangerous, man. Yeah. I mean, I can understand it. So mm. um, you've been talking about the blue leas. Yeah. And like the way that it falls yeah. off the cliffs. It really does. Mm. One time I went and sat on the beach there and it just... You could pull it off of the cliff. Of course. And when when he said that this ichthyosaur was in black clay, yeah. I think he was wrong. I think it was in the blue lias because it's ah, it's flaky. Like yeah. it's almost like a big thing of wax. Ooh. You can snap it. Oh wow. It's really bizarre. That's so strange. Honestly, it's the weirdest thing. And we were sitting there going how has this come off a cliff? Yeah. Like, at what point is this not rock anymore? This is not like <laughs> it's, it's not like rock. It's it's very odd stuff. So I could really imagine like uh, Mary's father falling yeah. off the cliff so easily because it, it's not stable. I kind of want to go back to Lyme Regis now and try this for myself. Well, we should. <laughs> I mean, we're allowed to travel in Five a month weeks. or so. Yeah. yeah. No, more than that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, back back to back to the before <laughs> times. Uh, there was another reason that Mary Anning was suffering financially, and this is because of religious discrimination. Oh no! Yeah. So the dissenters, the church that she was a part of, and she was quite a devoutly religious woman. Mm. They had been losing popularity, and I this is know. partly because their group was quite small, mm. but they had a really likable pastor. Okay. And he was apparently the one who got the crowds in. Mm. But he had left to go to America to campaign against slavery. So it's like, yeah, that's a, okay. that's yeah, a fair, fair reason enough. to go. <laughs> and unfortunately, his his replacement was a real dick. Oh. And as such, people stopped wanting to go along to these services. Because, mm. you know, you lost the good pastor and you got someone who wasn't even like 
just not as good. He was actively an awful person. Oh, that seems a shame when it seems like quite a positive church yeah. beforehand. Yeah. So Mary at around this point uh, converts or she was possibly forced to convert because the gentleman she was doing business with now regarded her religious affiliation with sort of suspicion. Yeah. So she does convert, which helps somewhat, but, you know... It's she still-, still has that, oh, she's a dissenter, she's not... Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it gets worse because in 1835, Mary lost her life savings. And this is sometimes described as being a bad investment that just, like, didn't go well. Okay. But sometimes it's also it's described as the work of a confidence trickster. Okay. It seems like a man pretending to be uh, an investment banker, basically, mm. tricked her into handing over her life savings. Oh, no. Or there is another version in which he was a real investor, mm. but he died shortly after getting the money off her mm. and she was never able to claim it back. So we've got a few versions of this story, but ultimately the result is the same. Mary loses her life savings and she had about £300 in savings, which is not... Okay, if you're a working class person. Exactly. I mean, we said earlier that £400 is about £32,000 in modern day money. So yeah, she was was doing all right. But she's got better savings than I do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A friend of hers, though, did manage to persuade the British Association for the Advancement of Science, as well as the British government, to give her a stipend of £25 a year for her contributions to science. Mm. So, as I said, there were still these individuals who really had her back, Mm. um, even if the establishment were being forced to grudgingly accept it. Yeah. But it's nice that there were a few people there looking out for her. Yeah. And this did help keep her afloat. Mm. Towards the end of her life, Mary's neighbours started noticing that there were strange changes in her behaviour. Okay. She was sometimes forgetful, or her speech would be a bit slurred, or she would stagger a little bit. And people started saying, she's a drunkard. Okay. And this wasn't true. Mm. She was actually using laudanum. Oh, okay. But this was because she was using it to stave off the effects of breast cancer that she was suffering from. Oh my god. Yeah. That's so many layers there, Barbie. I know, right? I didn't even realise they knew about breast cancer in this time. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, in 1846, uh, her illness was public knowledge at this point. Mm. And the Geological Society of London, that had previously refused her entry, actually raised money to help pay for her medications. Okay. And this is likely because the new chair of the society was Henry de la Beche, a naturalist and childhood friend of Mary's. Oh. Uh, he actually painted uh, the Duria Antiquior, which depicts a prehistoric Dorset with all the various different creatures mm. and monstrous things there. I think I've seen that. Yes, you will have. It's very famous and it was turned into prints in 1830 in order to raise money for Mary Anning and her family. Oh, nice. But yeah, it is very famous and mm. it's very cool. So I, I do recommend that people look up the Duria Antiquior. As far as I can remember, it's very much based on the ideas of what dinosaurs would have looked like at the time as well, which is like quite funny. And it's quite cool. Yeah. So in 1847, Mary died of breast cancer at the age of 48. Mm. And she was buried in the local parish church. 
And the Geological Society, you know, headed by Henry Delabesh and making up for all the crap from the previous <laughs> years, donated funds to have a stained glass window of the church built in her honour. Nice. And there's a little plaque underneath saying that it's in her memory. And also Henry Delabesh wrote a eulogy for her and gave it at the society. And this was an honour usually only given to members of the society. Mm. So she was the first non-member and the first woman to receive the honour. So... What a babe. I, I know, love Henry right? de la Beche. Yeah. And also he's got a great name. He does have a great name. I think this is the thing we see throughout Mary Anning's life is there were some people who really did believe in her and really wanted her to get the fame and mm. the money that she deserved for her work. But it was just fighting against the... What's the word I'm looking for? Like the the status quo. Yeah, I think so. Like yeah, just just the the conventions of the time where mm. women and particularly working class women were not seen as people who could you know enter the circles of science. Mm. Like at best, you could do some labour work or maybe like be a maid or something <laughs> or like work in an inn, but you certainly weren't the sort of person who could you know contradict gentlemen scientists in their journals. I think it's super interesting when we get characters like Henry de la Beche mm -hmm. because there is a tendency, I think, in any historical film yeah. or series to kind of go, oh, all these men are against this woman mm. and she's going to stand up in the face of all the odds, which, in the one hand, is kind of what they were doing. Yeah. But it also overlooks the humanity of people, I think, and the yeah. fact that there are always people who go against whatever the status quo mm. is, even though it benefits them. And I think sometimes those people do need a little bit of, you know, recognition. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the 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 gen the the gen the gentlemen mm. uh, who were on her side, I I have mad respect for them. Yeah. Um, like people like uh, what's his face, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Thomas James Birch. Yeah. I always he, want to say his name in full. It's like, a delightful name. It's a great name. Like he gave up something that was really precious to him because yeah. he was like you know, this family needs the money and I know that Mary Anning is doing great work. Mm. So, yeah. That was I, super sweet of him. That's a really nice sweet. thing to do. And of course, there are other figures in Mary Anning's history that are kind of not talked about so much. There are obviously, there are a great deal of labourers who worked with her, mm. um, particularly in the early days when she was very young. Yes, that makes sense. I had always had this image of her like this little tiny 11-year-old yeah. going out to find fossils and then you go, <laughs> "Oh, no, no, no. She had ha like she had physical help." Yes. No. There there were laborers who helped out with the fossil finding. That makes sense. Or at least with the excavation. Yeah. Um and there were also, and this is something I found really interesting as well, in her later life, or sort of mid to later life, mm. there were so many women who accompanied her on her fossil finding. Yeah. There's even, there are, there is a story, I forget the name, I didn't write it down, but there was a family who visited Lyme Regis and the daughter became friends with Mary. Mm. And so her parents were kind of like, do you want to just stay here for a bit and like just basically be her apprentice? And she was like, yeah. Wow. I believe, I'm, I'm not certain, I believe she was the woman whom Mary spoke to saying how awful yeah. the gentleman scientist had been to her. But this was something I found interesting as well when I was doing a little bit of research into Florence Nightingale for my mm. last 
um, for my last podcast episode yeah. um, was the fact that she travelled with 38 other yeah. female nurses. And I guess that is known to historians and people who study yeah. history. But when you get told the story of this person, they are always the lone woman yeah. by themselves. I thought Florence Nightingale was the only female nurse when mm. I was a child. I didn't know that she had all these other people who, while they're not sort of like outstanding yeah. in history they're there and they're making those contributions yeah i think this is the thing it's because we're remembering the extraordinary people and mm. of course like mary anning and florence nightingale you know as individuals they were exceptional yes um but obviously that you do then have people around those exceptional people who maybe are not as great yeah. like I'm, I'm trying to think of it in a way that doesn't sound like i'm putting them down but you know yeah they not, are still they're there not the standout people yeah. that you hear about but they are still for instance 38 women who decided to travel to crimea yeah. to help soldiers which is mad yeah i i also just think it's really cool like just i've just got this image of like all these ladies in 19th century Britain, like garb, mm -hmm. just going along the beach searching for fossils. And I love it's wonderful. It. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? I'm kind of imagining it, imagining it a bit like a Hindu thing. Imagine yes. if you're Hindu, when oh you go God. to Lyme Regis and you meet up with Mary Anning, <laughs> yeah, and she takes you out to find fossils. That would be the best thing ever. I'm imagining it as being like modern hen night stuff. So oh, yeah. like they're all trash, and yeah. they all have like penis on their heads or yeah, something. But they're fossil hunting. But they're fossil hunting. <laughs> that does sound great, actually. It's, it would be so good. <laughs> it sounds, yeah. Apart from, like, you don't want to go near dangerous cliffs when you're drunk. But other than that, drunken fossil hunting sounds pretty fun. Oh, yes. <laughs> you probably break a few. <laughs> but that's all right. They're mostly ammonites, which uh, I believe Mary Anning would sell for a few shillings each. So. I mean, you can still buy ammonites for like yeah. 50p or something. They are very common. They're so common. <laughs> but there may be more out there. There may be rarer fossils. And maybe you will find them, Reg uh, Regency? Regency? Is this Regency? Yeah. Yeah, ish. Regency ladies. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I never, I'm never quite sure when the Regency era is. Um, I guess this is Napoleonic Wars, so that is Regency, isn't it? Yeah, just about. Yeah. Like, I think so. Let's yeah. go for it. Let's, Let's call it yeah. Regency anyway. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. Just displaying some more historical ignorance. But yeah. <laughs> there we go. We've never claimed to be super professional. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you very much for joining us for that episode of That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4. If you have any suggestions for episodes, you can email them to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby has used in this episode. And thank you for listening. Now go hunt some fossils and invest in eels. Bye!